All right. All right, let's uh, find our seats so we can get started. All right, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here um, to study uh, the saints that have gone before us, that we might learn from them, Father, and uh, learn from the struggles that they went through. Uh, we ask that you would, uh, you would um, help us all to understand what I'm saying and that you would help me to communicate well. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our... Uh, course in church history going through uh, Nick Needham's book as a uh, as a textbook and now we're on chapter 8 which is the age of Innocent the third um, Innocent the third being one of the most powerful if not the most powerful popes of the uh, the medieval period and just as a, a little note um, I'm probably going to be a little bit more polemical than I usually am uh, for these lessons uh, because Innocent the third is is so bad that I, I think it's actually warranted here no, no, he was definitely not innocent. Um, so to start, we have uh, question one. How is Innocent the Third described by Nick Needham on page 325? So I'll just read the description here. Um, he was a short, stout man with wide, staring eyes. He was a cool, calculating, far-seeing ruler of the Western Church, patient and determined, a perfect genius at turning even hostile circumstances to his own advantage. And he was um, born to the Conti de Segni family, which in total produced uh, nine popes. So nine popes came from this family, and he wasn't even the, uh, the first pope from that family. But he originally studied law and theology in Rome, uh, and then Bologna, and then Paris and he held various ecclesiastical offices until he was elected pope at age 37. Um, so moving on to uh, question two, what is meant by the title Vicar of Christ? Um, before I dive into that, does anybody want to say what vicar means, just the term vicar? Substitute. Substitute, exactly. So the, uh, the title Vicar of Christ would be Substitute of Christ, or one that stands in the place of Christ. Um, and actually, uh, last time I was teaching up here, we went through the fact that Charlemagne was really the first person to call himself the vicar of God. Um, and he used that in the sense that um, he was standing in the place of God while ruling over the, uh, the Frankish Empire. He was standing in for God and his rule. Um, but the popes hadn't actually applied the title to themselves up until Innocent III. The popes used to call themselves the vicar of Peter. Um, they said that they stood in the place of Peter and exercised his authority. But Innocent actually rejected this, um, and he said that he was actually the vicar of Christ, not uh, just the vicar of Peter, um, which I'd, I'd just like to sort of point out uh, undermines the, the power claims of Innocent III if um, the, popes, the previous popes can be wrong about where their power comes from um, and he's all of a sudden right. It doesn't give us much confidence that he's actually right because the popes can err about where their power comes from. Um, but in, in taking this title to himself and claiming to represent Christ on earth, he, uh, he made some incredibly blasphemous statements. And I'll read one from the book here. 
Um, the Lord Jesus Christ has established one sovereign over all as his universal vicar, whom all things in heaven, earth, and hell should obey, even as they bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So um, he's saying here that just as, as Christ should be obeyed, he should be obeyed, not merely in the earth, but also in heaven and in hell. And um, just to, just to um, read some Bible verses I think are relevant uh, to that, we have uh, Jude 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, uh, disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So um, here Jude is pointing out that Michael didn't even take it upon himself to rebuke the Lord, but petitioned the Lord to rebuke Satan. And yet here we have the Pope saying that, oh, well, everyone in hell, including Satan, would, uh, should obey the Pope just like they obey Christ. And then there's uh, 1 Peter 5, which is written by Peter, obviously. And he says, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So here, Peter, supposedly the first pope, is saying that he's also an elder, just like the rest of the elders, and that elders should not lord themselves over uh, God's heritage, but should be an example to the church, which is the exact opposite of what um, Innocent III is saying, saying that he is the universal vicar and everyone should be subject to him. Uh, so we see here that the height of the worldly power of the papacy goes height and height, uh, hand in hand with the height of its blasphemy, actually. Were there any uh, questions or comments about that before we move on to the next question? All right. Then we'll move on to question three. How does Innocent become a uh, political master of Rome? And... Um, after he's elected pope, there's a civil war in the Holy Roman Empire, and um, he uses this as an opportunity with the Holy Roman Empire not paying that much attention to Italy to seize political power in Ro both Rome and Italy at large. Uh, he got the imperial prefect to uh, swear loyalty to the pope instead of to the emperor, and then he ultimately backed one of the parties in the civil war, Otto uh, of Brunswick, in exchange for uh, concessions that he would... Uh, he would get the papal states restored to him and that they would be independent and that the Holy Roman Empire would not involve itself anymore in northern Italy uh, and also that the Pope would have control over the German churches. After Otto won the war, however, uh, he reneged on his promises uh, and that left Innocent in a rage, so he actually then backed another claimant to the throne and um, formed a coalition, put together a coalition with France that ultimately defeated Otto. And that time, uh, the new Holy Roman Empire emperor did acquiesce to um, Innocent's demands. So at that point, he had um, the Holy Roman Emperor subject to him. But he was actually also able to subject uh, England to himself. Uh, there was a contested election uh, for the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Innocent appointed Stephen Langton to the Arch archbishopric. 
Um, and that was over John of Gray, who King John of England had uh, decided should be uh, Archbishop. Uh, and John, King John, refused to accept Stephen, saying that anyone who recognized him as Archbishop was an enemy of the public. So in retaliation, Innocent put uh, the uh, whole, whole of England under the interdict and, uh, for four years. And the interdict is a uh, prohibition of the clergy from performing their sacramental and spiritual duties. So in this case, um, uh, for example, baptism, uh, except in the case of one approaching death and the Lord's Supper were suspended in England for four years. Um, and as a side comment, uh, so I guess the, uh, the laity are the ones to suffer when the Pope and the King have it, uh, have it uh, are going at it. Uh, I have, find it hard to believe that Peter would have put Rome under the interdict and um, refused uh, for people to be baptized in there just because the Roman Emperor wouldn't listen to him. But uh, maybe that's just me. Um, after four years uh, and John not giving in, Innocent III uh, excommunicated John and released all the nobles from their loyalty to him and called for a crusade against him. And at that point, John did finally give in, and he actually surrendered the nation to the pope, and it became the pope's property. So the pope was not merely um, political ruler of um, uh, the papal states, but also had political control over England. Question four, what uh, is meant by papal supremacy? Does somebody want to um, give me a, a definition of papal supremacy? Well, uh, papal supremacy is the idea that the pope, by the fact that he is the vicar of Christ, has authority over the entire church. So he is, he is the, um, the first... Uh, He's the pri he has primacy over the entire church. Um, question five, what ecclesiastical reforms does Innocent III establish? So first, he uh, created the office of papal legate, which was uh, an ambassador, a papal ambassador that went out to oversee church affairs and make sure that the pope's policies were being followed. Um, Second, the Pope determined that he had the right to appoint bishops in disputed cases, which we already saw with the, uh, the case of um, John, King John, and the Archbishop of Canterbury. And three, uh, the clergy were uh, now to pay a tax to the Pope. Question seven, what is the Fourth Lateran Council? So this was a council called in uh, 1215, and it was considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be the 12th ecumenical council. Uh, it dealt with a number of issues, but is most known for infallibly defining the doctrine of transubstantiation for the Catholic Church. Um, it did also deal with penalties for heretics, proclamation that the Pope held primacy, election of church leaders, uh, and the relationship of ecclesiastical law to secular law, to name a few other topics. One very interesting thing was that um, it said that all Catholics must confess their sins to a priest at least once a year and receive communion once a year. Um, so in order to remain with, in good standing within uh, the Catholic Church, you had to do those things at least once a year. Um, and it seems that the canons were probably drafted by Innocent himself and then just ratified by the council. 
Then question seven, what is transubstantiation? Would somebody like to give me a, uh, a definition of that? The elements become the uh, body and blood of, uh, yeah, the elements of bread and wine become the body and blood of uh, Jesus Christ. And it's a little bit important to note that um, there's a little bit more to transubstantiation because it specifically uses Aristotelian categories of accidents and substance, saying that it's the substance of the bread and wine that have changed, but the accidental properties that remain the same. Specifically, so it's, it's saying that, well, the substance has actually changed even though it just appears to still remain exactly the same to all, all human senses. And that's a, that's a slight important difference because while the Eastern Church also holds that uh, the body and blood, or the, the bread and wine become the body and blood, they don't necessarily hold to that specific understanding of what's going on. So there's a little bit of a, a difference there. And I've had, um, I've interacted with Roman Catholics where they'll point to a church father saying that, oh, it became the blood, body and blood, and say, see, that's transubstantiation. It's like, well, no, it's not exactly transubstantiation because there's a little bit more to it than that. But anyway, um, question eight, what is the Inquisition? Does anybody want to give me a definition? Jews, and then as we'll see, there's uh, we'll go through. There's quite a number of heretics from the the Roman Catholic Church's perspective that they're going to inquire in and attempt to force to convert back. Um, but yes, the Inquisition was set up uh, in order to stop uh, several groups um, that were heretical from their perspective. Um, they investigated claims of heresy and would convict people of it. And while the church itself would not punish heretics and put them to death, it did expect the state to do so. So uh, frequently the Inquisition could say, wipe their hands like, oh, we didn't, we didn't put these people to death, the state did, because that's their authority. Um, but really, uh, if the Inquisition said somebody should be put to death, they were going to be put to death. Um, and I just want to read a little bit of uh, Innocent III's reasoning for why the... Uh, the um, the Pope had the power to do these sorts of things. So this is from page 355 of the book. Um, and this is his attempt at biblical reasoning for the, uh, the reason he has the power to do these things. The creator of the universe set up two great lights in the firmament of heaven, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Likewise, for the firmament of the universal church, which is spoken of as heaven, he appointed two great powers the greater to exercise rule over souls, corresponding to the days, and the lesser to exercise rule over bodies, corresponding to the nights. These powers are the papal authority and the office of the king. Further, the moon derives its light from the sun and is inferior to the sun in its size, quality, and position, as well as in its effect. Likewise, the kingly office derives its splendor from the papal authority, and the more closely the kingly office adheres to the shining sphere of papal authority, the less brightly does the kingship itself shine out. But the further away it removes itself from the papacy, kingship increases its own glory. So he's um, allegorizing uh, the creation story 
to represent the papacy and uh, secular governments there, um, which obviously I would not agree with, but that was, that was his reasoning. All right, so moving on to question nine, who are the Waldensians? And um, I'll just make a, a brief note about all the groups that we uh, go through here, um, that uh, a lot of times they're put under broad categories like Waldensians, Cathars, Albigensians, and um, not all of them necessarily hold to the same beliefs. And this is um, made worse by the fact that a lot of times all our sources about them are from Roman Catholics who weren't inclined to represent them accurately. Um, so I will be presenting a broad overview of what they believe, but um, specifics might differ. You might be able to find a source that says, oh, well, actually this group of Waldensians believed X rather than Y. But um, the Waldensians are probably followers of Peter Waldo. Um, there are some that claim that they actually existed as a movement prior to Waldo, although it's sort of hard to determine if that was true or not. Uh, but at the very least, they do get associated with uh, Peter Waldo. Um, and Waldo was a wealthy cloth merchant um, uh, from the city of Lyon. And um, one night at a uh, party with uh, him and his rich friends, he was talking to another wealthy cloth merchant, and that guy uh, just died right in front of him, which shook, uh, shook Waldo quite a bit. And he, um, he began to search out spiritual things, realizing that he could die at any time, and he didn't know if he was right with God. Um, so he had the Bible translated into French and started reading it for himself. And he saw that Christ had said to the rich young ruler, uh, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And he took that as a command to himself, so he sold all his possessions uh, and uh, gave to the, boor, uh, the poor and actually began to preach. And uh, he gained a large following because of this, um, and they ended up being called the poor men of Lyon, um, because that's where Waldo was uh, gaining his following. And the uh, Catholic ecclesiastical hierarchy was pretty hostile to them, um, as only ordained clergy by, ordained by them were allowed to preach. And the preaching that Waldo and his, uh, his followers did was often directed at them uh, and at the abuses that they were um, engaging in. So Waldo ended up making an appeal to the Pope at the Third Lateran Council for acceptance, in which he was rejected. And at that point onward, you see a, uh, a concerted effort to uh, persecute the Waldensians. And a lot of uh, groups from this era are called uh, proto-Protestants. That is that um, they, uh, while they come before the Protestant Reformation, they share a lot of Protest what we would call Protestant beliefs. They're forerunners in that regard. And I definitely think um, the Waldensians have a claim to that title. Um, it's a little hard to say because um, we don't have that many records of what exactly they believed. And it does seem that early on, Waldo and uh, the early Waldensians had a lot of holdovers from the Catholic Church in their belief. It took some time to uh, weed out the specifically Catholic beliefs. Um, but over time, they did come to a more, um, what we would see as Protestant understanding of things. Um, they held the Bible should be the final authority in Christian practice. Um, they rejected the authority of the papacy, transubstantiation, purgatory, indulgences, and prayer to the dead. Um, while there's uh, evidence that uh, some Waldensians practiced paedo-baptism, there's also some evidence that some of them practiced credo-baptism. 
Um, there, I'll note that there is a confession that um, uh, Waldensian confession that uh, circulates around that's supposedly from uh, 1120, so it's an early confession. Although um, later schol or recent scholarship seems to say that it was probably from the Reformation era, so it's hard to say if it's an accurate reflection of what they actually believed at the time. But in general, this, from what we can gather, this appears to be what they uh, believed. And then, very interestingly enough, during the Reformation, because Waldensians survived up until that time, they actually, um, in the countries that were Protestant, they ended up joining with the Protestant churches of those countries. They felt that um, there was no significant uh, theological difference between them, so they ended up uh, joining, uh, joining those churches, which, as far as I'm aware, is completely unheard of in, in history, that you would have a pre-existing religious group uh, come to another newly established religious group and say, oh, well, we're, we're basically the same, so we're going to join with you. It's, a, it's an interesting testimony that uh, God keeps his saints throughout all generations. Um, question 10 is uh, on the Cathars. Who are the Cathars? And as Needham notes, there's a couple of different views in regards to them. Uh, the first is that they were just a, a Gnostic sect. Um, the second is that they were proto-Protestant. And uh, the third is that they didn't exist at all. And um, I agree with Needham that certainly some of them were Gnostic. I actually read a book in, in college uh, entitled Montague, which was uh, a look at original source documents of the Cathars in the, in the uh, town of Montague. And they definitely had some very uh, Gnostic beliefs that the physical was evil and all that. Um, but uh, there's some problems in determining exactly what all they believe. And a lot of it's due, as I said earlier, that these groups aren't necessarily one single unit all in lockstep with each other. There's a variety of belief. And again, the Roman Catholic authorities that we're reading, um, reading about their beliefs from don't necessarily always represent them accurately. And they're also willing to call people Cathars that might not have actually been Cathars. They might have been a different group entirely, but um, they're, they were, um, they're not going to delve into which specific group it is, so they just all label them as heretics. Um, but in general, the Gnostic Cathars believed salvation came through spiritual enlightenment. Um, Satan was as powerful as God and that he had kidnapped a spirit and placed it in a physical body, which was evil, and that the ultimate sin was to have children as it increased the number of bodies Satan could use to trap spirits in. Um, there were two classes of people for the, uh, these Gnostic Cathars, uh, believers and the perfect. Uh, the perfect acted as clergy, and they had uh, to renounce marriage and property, as well as meat and all dairy. Question 11, who were the Albigensians? So the Albigensians were a subgroup of Cathars, and uh, they were named after the town of Albi in southern France, where they had a lot of influence. Um, uh, the Catholics had sent missionaries to this area to convert the Albigensians, but they had very little success in doing so. So Innocent III proclaimed a crusade against them, and just like all the other crusades, or just like other crusades, um, those who fought were granted a plenary indulgence from their sins. Um, and a lot of the French nobility took place, uh, participated uh, in this crusade as it increased their power and allowed them to take land in southern France. And uh, the crusade absolutely devastated uh, southern France. 
It wiped out the Albigensians completely and the Waldensians that were in that area in southern France because the Crusaders weren't necessarily particularly interested in distinguishing which group of heretics they put to death. They were all heretics, so they just killed them all. Um, are there any questions about Albigensians, Cathars, Waldensians before we keep going? Yes? Well, I would just mention about that southern France thing against the Albigensians. Wipe them out is accurate, but it's, you know, it's to me it's kind of dramatic that it was men, women, and children. So you take people and murder them for being heretics that just because of their heritage, that doesn't sound very Christian. No, not particularly, <laughs> not particularly. And one more reason that innocent the third is, is not so innocent. Um, question 12, who are the Petrobrusians? So they ultimately get their name from uh, Peter de Broys, who was a um, Roman Catholic priest. But sometime between 1117 and 1120, he actually began to preach against the Catholic Church. Um, and multiple uh, people and, uh, that I've seen have called him a Manichaean, but if you actually look at his beliefs, he was not a Manichaean. Uh, the only real contemporary sources we have of him um, and what he believed was a tract written by Peter the Venerable and then um, uh, a little bit that Peter Abelard actually uh, wrote about him. But uh, Peter the Venerable wrote a, a tract against Peter, and that's where we get most of our understanding of what he believed. And he basically had five, five primary criticisms of Peter de Broglie. Um, he wrote that uh, Peter was against infant baptism, saying it didn't save the child. It was not another's faith, but one's own faith with baptism that saved. Uh, and that was a criticism because Roman Catholic theology has that the faith of the parent does transfer to the infant in baptism. Um, two, uh, church buildings and altars were not holy. The church was made up of people, the people of the congregation, and it wasn't the building that was, uh, that was holy. Three, uh, crosses should not be venerated, but should be broken up and, and in fact, destroyed. Uh, four, um, he denied transubstantiation and the doctrine of the mass. And five, he denied that sacrifices or good works could be done on behalf of the dead. And to the point, um, uh, to point number four, uh, denial of transubstantiation. I want to actually read from the tract here, um, and this is—he's talking about the Petrobrusians here. They deny not only the truth of the body and blood of the Lord daily and constantly offered in the church through the sacrament, but declare that it is nothing at all and not and ought not to be offered to God. They say, "O oh, people, do not believe the bishops, priests, or clergy who seduce you." who has in many things, so in the office of the altar, deceive you when they falsely profess to make the body of Christ and give it to you for the salvation of your souls. So it's a little unclear to me uh, exactly what they did believe in regards to the uh, um, Lord's Supper, but at the very least, they didn't believe that it could be offered as a sacrifice and that it was for salvation. So that was, um, that was what they believed. Um, now, I'd heard about the Petrobrusians long before um, preparing for this lesson, and I had heard that uh, Peter actually rejected the authority of the Old Testament, which is obviously a, would be a big uh, mark against him. But in preparing for this, I couldn't find the original, at least initially, I couldn't find the original source for that. And it seemed very strange to me that that would be the case given what Peter 
uh, Peter, the Venerable, uh, said about uh, Peter de Broglie, um, because these, of these five points, none of them seem to in any way have anything to do with the rejection of the Old Testament. Normally, when you see a group reject the Old Testament, it's because there's something they don't like in it that uh, they want to uh, not have to deal with. But not only do we not see any of that in Peter's writing, but, uh, for example, crosses should not be venerated. Um, the first place I would go to prove that would be the Old Testament. It would be the Ten Commandments. So I, I found that to be odd. I think I eventually tracked down where that might come from, although um, I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, in the tract, Peter the Venerable also writes, Now, if what you say is true, you lose not only the books of the Old Testament, which we defend, but the gospel as well, which you have accepted, since the whole world has this not from those who have seen and heard, but from the church and the tradition of the fathers. So you could read that in a way that he's saying, like, oh, you, you lose the Old Testament books, which we Catholics defend, and the gospel as well, which you have accepted, um, even though you haven't accepted the Old Testament books. But I don't think it necessarily has to be read that way. Um, so I figured I would throw that out there just in case you're, you're ever in a conversation about this and have somebody bring up the fact that um, the Petrobrusians didn't hold to the Old Testament, that... That, that seems to be a very shaky assertion to me. And then, um, because it does sound like they're, uh, with the rejection of baptism as, uh, as saving, that the um, saving of infants, that uh, they're espousing uh, justification by faith alone, I wanted to read one last quotation from the tract. Um, uh, Peter the Venerable writes, You must either say that we Catholics are heathen, or if you avoid that, you must admit that we have faith in Christ and the gospel, and the martyrs were saved by faith alone and martyrdom without baptism. Now, if you admit this, that you say some can be saved by their faith alone without baptism, why do you not believe that some can be saved by baptism alone without faith of their own? If martyrs are saved by their faith alone without baptism, why cannot children be saved by baptism alone without faith? Now, obviously, I don't, I don't agree with his reasoning there, that just because you can be saved by faith alone would mean that you could be saved by baptism alone. But it's interesting that he's, he's saying, oh, well, if you would accept that uh, you can save by faith alone, why not baptism? Implying that he didn't think that they had any issue with being saved by faith alone. So that would be a very strong indication that they did actually believe in being justified by faith alone. But... Um, Peter was ultimately uh, put to death, and Henry of uh, Louisane took over the movement. Um, and at this point, the Petrobusians are sometimes called Henricans after Henry. Um, they may have joined with the Waldensians, or they may have died out, or they have, um, might have lasted longer, but we don't have any record of them after 1151. Um, so it seems that they had maybe around a 30-year period where they were prominent enough to be mentioned, and then either were uh, taken into another movement or, uh, or uh, went away. All right, um, moving on to the Franciscans. The Franciscans um, were, founded, were a monastic movement founded by St. Francis of Assisi. Um, he was the son of a uh, wealthy cloth merchant, and he was troubled uh, during his early life. He was troubled by the fact that he was wealthy, and all around him he saw... Uh, poor and destitute people, and he was troubled by the fact that his father, being wealthy, didn't seem to be all that concerned with the state of the poor. So that bothered him early on. During his uh, young adulthood, he actually went to war, 
um, he, uh, Assisi was at war with uh, another part of Italy. So he went to war. He was captured and held as a prisoner for a long time. Um, and being held as a prisoner where he didn't have a lot of food, he identified with the poor in that regard, saying that he felt that he had finally experienced uh, what poverty must have felt like. Um, but he was ultimately returned to Assisi after the end of the war, and um, he went on to try and help the poor. Um, and a, a rift started forming with his father. Ultimately, he ended up stealing, um, stealing money from his father and uh, using it to refurbish a church. And um, I had two conflicting sources on this. One source said that he had a vision from Jesus himself to go and do this. Uh, the other said that he was just moved by looking at the state of the dilapidated church and decided, decided to do it. Um, but regardless, either way, um, when it was discovered that he had uh, stolen from his father, his father actually took him to court and uh, Francis lost. So he gave up all that he had um, to his father and then started a life of begging in poverty. Uh, he renounced his father and said that from then on, God alone would be his father. Uh, the message he proclaimed was that of humility and poverty. Um, after gaining some followers, he eventually organized them into a, an order of monks. Uh, and the Franciscans were begging monks, uh, that is, they would beg for their food. Um, and in 1210, after founding the order, he went to Rome and asked for the blessing of Innocent III, which he granted, Innocent III having a dream that he should essentially, uh, he should do this for Francis. However, Rome eventually appointed a cardinal over the uh, Franciscans, uh, that was Cardinal Ugolino, and Ugolino eventually usurped uh, Francis and became more prominent in the order than, than Francis himself. And uh, he led the Franciscans to leave the idea of absolute poverty behind and become more of a, a traditional monastic order, at which point uh, Francis resigned and uh, withdrew into uh, privacy. The, uh, and the order began to change even more after Francis's death. Uh, originally, uh, they were opposed to scholasticism, but uh, as they drifted away from the ideals of their founding, uh, many uh, Franciscans became scholastics. Um, but uh, as they continued to drift, some of the Franciscans wanted to go back to a life of absolute poverty. Um, and these ended up being called the spiritual Franciscans, whereas the ones that wanted to remain with the status quo were called conventual. Uh, Franciscans, and the Pope uh, sided with the conventional Franciscans, at which point the spiritual Franciscans split away, and um, they labeled the Pope as an antichrist, uh, which the Pope did not take kindly to, and uh, uh, the papacy would try to destroy uh, these Franciscans up until 1517, when Pope Leo X finally gave in and split the Franciscans into two separate orders. Um, so here we have another example of a, a pope contradicting another pope, one pope saying that the spiritual Franciscans needed to be uh, gotten rid of and the other one tolerating their existence. But um, before we move on, I just wanted to, to make a comment about um, the, uh, the existence of begging uh, monks and um, how, that, uh, how we would view that biblically. So um, I'm gonna read from uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verses nine through 11. This is Paul speaking, obviously. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you uh, to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. 
so for the the Christians, we're supposed to work to get our, our own food, um, to have a order that from the outset is saying we won't work, we will just beg, um, seems to be anti-biblical to me. Um, that's not to say that they weren't, they, in their mind, they weren't doing things maybe potentially worthy of, of their food that they were preaching or whatever, but it would seem to me to be the, uh, the opposite mindset that one should have when forming a, if monastic orders were biblical when forming a monastic order. Um, all right, so we're on to the last question here. Um, who, uh, what are the Dominicans? So the Dominicans were an order founded by Dominic Guzman of Spain. Uh, he recognized that the missionary efforts to the Albigensians and Waldensians were failing because the lifestyles of the missionaries that were sent were very extravagant, and that didn't work very well uh, for the people they were trying to convert who were humble and recognized that their, their clergy were very humble and poor. Therefore, he concluded that Roman Catholics should have missionaries that were pure and simple in lifestyle. So he founded the Dominicans, which would beg for food and also be missionary preachers. Um, and he received backing from the Fourth Lateran Council to do this. Um, and although they were initially just founded to preach to the non-Catholics of uh, southern France, the Dominicans actually eventually achieved an international um, influence and became teachers of theology, and specifically scholastic theology. Uh, they were not as well received by Catholic Europe as the Franciscans because they were seen to be more of an arm of the uh, institutional church, an arm of the papacy. And uh, they were actually the ones that ran the Inquisition. Uh, the Dominicans were, were the inquisitors. And they persecuted um, many of the, uh, the groups that were underneath the Inquisition. Um, and then one interesting note, um, they actually opposed the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which is interesting because that's a, a doctrine that you have to believe to be Catholic today. So um, it's interesting to see that even the Inquisition of the past wouldn't match with uh, the Catholicism today. So that's all I had. Were there any questions or comments? Yes, Tom. Hey, Sean, I appreciate what you said at the beginning, that you tend to group all these people together and think they think alike, and we know that's not true. And if you look at history, a lot of times they start good and then they drift. Mm -hmm. Look at our own denominations today. Yeah. Methods, yep. They're all sinners. Even Southern Baptists, we tend to drift. So as you look at history, it says, oh, they were good, oh, but later on they became bad. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the problem. Yeah. And that's, the church isn't a specific movement, right? It's not, uh, we, we can't give a, a name like, oh, well, it's, it's this movement in history or that's movements in history. The church is, is all over the place. There were, there were true Christians in the institutional Catholic church and there were true Christians outside of it. Um, so if ultimately some of these, these groups end up you know, not being as solid as they once were, well, Christ didn't promise to preserve them. He promised to preserve our church, his church. So um, that's what we should look through in history. Any other questions or comments? Thank you. All right. Well, in that case, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for this Lord's Day that you have given to us and um, all the blessings you've given us today. We ask that you would prepare our hearts for worship, Father, that um, we would be attentive to the word preached, that you would give good words to our, uh, to our pastor to preach to us, and that uh, we would be edified in all that we do today. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen.